Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 31 to 39. So we're going to return to our sermon series in Ephesians next Sunday, but today we're in Romans chapter 8. And so while you're turning there to Romans 8, uh, verses 31 to 39, I'd like for you to also think with me for a moment about what, what, what tends to come to mind for you whenever you hear the word Easter. You know, for me, uh, growing up outside of the church, not in a Christian home, but, but hearing about Easter every springtime, I, whenever I would hear Easter, I immediately thought about, you know, pastel clothes and bunnies, plastic eggs and chocolate. And many of you know that I grew up in South Georgia, which has about the same climate as it is here. So I, I thought of not only chocolate, but, but melted chocolate about this time of year. Then as a kid who, who grew up on a farm, I was always very, very confused, and perhaps you've shared this confusion, about the connection between bunnies and eggs. You know, because I knew that bunnies don't lay eggs. And I also found it odd and a little bit creepy that a giant bunny was hiding the eggs. But yet we know that we're, we're not here this morning because of any of those things. Right? The Easter is Easter because 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the grave. And if you're here this morning because this is one of the few Sundays each year that you find yourself in a church, then know that you picked a good one to come. We're so glad that you're here, and I hope, I hope that you feel welcomed. And I hope that, that you know that I would love to meet you. I would love to say hello to you after the service if you're willing to do that. And, and I, even I understand that if, if you're someone who would say, Richard, you know, it's, it's, nice, it's nice for you that, that, that if, if you believe that Jesus really did rise from the grave 2,000 years ago, but I live in a world where dead people do not come back to life. I understand that. In fact, that, that's where I was until God saved me by his grace as a young adult. And then he saved me. And everything changed for me. That's also where the, the human author of our passage in Romans chapter 8, that's the Apostle Paul, that's where he was before he met the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ for himself on the road to Damascus. And after that, everything changed for him. And you heard some of his testimony in the, the 1 Corinthians 15 reading. You see, regardless of, of how you would describe yourself this morning, whether you would say, Richard, I... Listen, I'm not a Christian, and, and, and I, I never plan to seriously consider following him, or whether you would say, if I'm honest, and you ought to be honest, I really don't know very much at all about the Bible, or about Jesus, or about Christianity, or even what it means to be a Christian, and so I'm not exactly sure what I believe, or whether you would say, Richard, I've been following Christ for years or decades, regardless of where you would put yourself on your spiritual journey, Understanding, believing, embracing, trusting, living in light of the truths contained in this passage today can change everything for you. I mean, it, it might mean that you experience the saving grace of God for the very first time. It might mean that you experience the forgiveness of your sins for the very first time. That the burden and the guilt 
and the weight of your sin is lifted off your shoulders for the very first time. Or it might mean that even after years and maybe even decades of, of being uncertain of, doubting whether or not God really loves you, you might finally have certainty and assurance of God's love for you in Christ. See, that's what this text is about. And as I read our text, I want you to listen for the seven questions that the Apostle Paul asks. Yes, seven questions, each one you're building upon the other. And those seven questions are going to serve as our outline this morning, headed towards this wonderful, glorious statement that nothing, though nothing, in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So listen for these seven questions. And hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. So we're going to look at this text under with seven headings looking at the seven questions but if that sounds long six and seven we'll do together okay so those seven questions question number one what then shall we say to these things it's a big question and that big question is is calling us to reflect back on all that paul has been saying in romans chapter eight now romans chapter eight is a glorious chapter you know, for many Christians, it, it's, it's their favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And so I, and I don't have time to go back and read those first 30 verses, but I am going to give you a, a quick summary of this magnificent chapter. So it, it begins with this statement that there is no more condemnation for you now or ever if you're in Christ because Jesus was condemned in your place as your substitute on the cross 2,000 years ago. And then the bulk of the first 30 verses in Romans chapter 8 talks about the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is referenced 20 times in Romans chapter 8. Do you know what that means? That means the Holy Spirit is referenced more times in Romans chapter 8 than in any other chapter in the Bible. Here are some of the things we learn in this chapter. That the Spirit of God dwells in you now if you're in Christ, and He's a down payment of your future resurrection from the grave. And he also empowers you to put to death your sinful deeds. 
And the Holy Spirit living in you is also proof of your adoption as a child of God. And the Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you are in fact a child of God when, not if, but when, the inevitable accusations and doubts come. The Holy Spirit even helps you in your weakness by praying for you when you don't know what to pray for. Then in Romans 8, 28, we read about how for followers of Christ, God is working all things, good things, bad things, impossible things, all things together for your good, which is to be conformed to the image of his son, Christ. And then the verses that immediately precede our passage, we read about how God foreknew every Christian before they were even born. And everyone God foreknew, he also predestined. And everyone God predestined, he also called. And everyone he called, he also justified. And everyone he justified, he also glorified, which means that God assures us that he will bring all of his people, each and every one, all of his people, without exception, all of the way home. And after that, Paul asked, what then shall we say to these things? What can we say to these things? Then Paul goes on to ask six more rhetorical questions. Each question is designed to keep building towards, leading us towards, this gospel-driven, gospel-centered confidence and assurance that nothing, though nothing in all creation, can separate you, dear Christian, from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. So that's the first question. What shall we say to these things? Question two, we see in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now notice, Paul doesn't ask, okay, who is against us? Because then we could come up with a lot of people and things that are against us, right? I mean, we, we we have rivals and competitors at work and in our careers who certainly seem to be against us. We may have, you know, cranky and annoying and selfish neighbors who seem to be against us. We have the various trials and accidents and illnesses that inevitably come our way in this life. We have our own sinful and deceitful hearts that are against us. The the devil is against us. The the flow of of this world is often against us, against followers of Christ. See, there's plenty that can be and is in fact against us, but the essence of this second question is found in the if clause. See, if or since, or because God is for us, who can be against us? You see what Paul's saying? If the God who has never, is never, and will never be defeated by anything or anyone is for us, who can really be against us? If the God who is sovereign over all things is for us, who can really be against us? If the God who always uses all things for his good purpose and plan is for us, then who can be against us? If the God who can never be surprised, never be outflanked, never be wearied, never be confused is for us, who can be against us? You see, with this question of verse 32, on 31, what Paul's doing is he's calling us to think about things with with, with a, imagine a balance scale. And put everything and everyone who could possibly be against you on this side and just put your God on this side. And realize that this is how the scale always goes, just like this. 
that all of this, everything we could put on this side, is, is essentially nothing compared to our God. Lighter than a breath compared to the, to the weightiness and the power, the sovereignty, and the love of our God. See, Christian, do you believe that your God is really for you? I mean, I, I, know, I know you know that as, as, as the intellectual answer, but do you believe that? Do you believe that your God is always with you? See, I know we, we're often anxious and we're confused and we're burdened over our own sin, and, and at times we even feel defeated. But if you are in Christ, then what Paul's calling you to do, inviting you to do, is to put your name, read your name, into verse 31 to realize that God is for you put your name there and if God is for you then who can be against you you see what Paul's doing here with these these seven questions he's beginning to set up reason upon reason upon reason as to why we can and we should and we must trust the assurance that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord but how do you know you can trust that God is for you? Maybe you say, yes, Richard, okay, yes, Richard, if God is for me, then I agree. Who can be against me? But how can I trust? How can I know that he really is for me? Well, Paul anticipates that question. And so look at his third question in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, Paul asks that third question because Paul knows the human heart. He knows his own heart. He knows our hearts. See, Paul knows that we often doubt whether or not God is really and truly for us. And so he offers additional assurances in this second question. You see, if God is for us, if God is on our side, if he's for us, that means he's on our side. And because he's for us, because he's on our side, the Father gave his Son for us to atone for our sins. So how do I know that I can trust that God is really for me? Paul takes us to the cross. Because looking back at the cross, we know that God did not withhold. He did not spare his own Son, but gave him up to save us. Now, the, the Greek that's translated gave him up, it means more than merely gave. It means more than merely giving. It means closer to, to hand him over, to deliver him up. In fact, it's the same word that's used to describe what, what Judas did, what the priests did, what Pilate did. Right? We're told that Judas delivered or handed over Jesus to the authorities in Gethsemane. And then the priest delivered, handed Jesus over to Pilate, and Pilate delivered or handed over Jesus to the soldiers to be crucified. But I want you to look at Romans 8.32. Who really gave Jesus up for us all? Octavius Winslow, a pastor in the 1800s who was a contemporary of J.C. Ryle and Charles Spurgeon, he asked the question, who delivered up Jesus to die? His answer, not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. 
That's what Paul's telling us in Romans 8, 32. Listen to how commentator William Hendrickson puts it. God the judge has a son, an only son, very precious to him. That son never committed any sin. In all he did, he was ever pleasing his father. On the other hand, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Yet on this precious and beloved son, God now pronounces the sentence we deserved. It's a sentence immeasurable in its severity and is carried out in every detail. God did not spare his son, did not mitigate the severity of the sentence in any way whatsoever. The son himself agreeing with the father and the spirit in all this. He, the son, fully bore that horrendous curse. He drank the cup of unspeakable agony to the very last drop. And we ask, but why was the curse lifted from our shoulders and transferred to the Son of God? The answer is, so deeply, intensely, and marvelously did God love the world that his Son, the only begotten, he gave, in order that everyone who believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whereas Paul asks in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, in an effort to be as balanced as the Bible is balanced, which we ought to be, it's worth mentioning that, that not only did God the Father give up the Son for us, but don't miss that God the Son also willingly took on human flesh, willingly lived a perfect, righteous life, the life that we failed to live, and willingly gave up his own life and died a real death on the cross to save us. As Jesus himself says in John 10, 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. But why does the Son, why does God the Son lay down his life? Because of his love for us. In Galatians 2.20 we read, In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Or Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, if you want proof and you want assurance of God the Father's love for you, of God the Son's love for you, of God the Spirit's love for you, then look to the cross. As the Welsh pastor David Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, such then is the measure of God's love. And it is, on, it is the only adequate measure of a love which is beyond measure. So dear Christian, how do you know for certain that God is for you? Paul says, remember the cross. He says, remember Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, Paul's point for you, dear Christian, is that if, if God gave up his own son to save you, how crazy is it whenever we worry and think that perhaps God is holding back from us now? I mean, how can we ever think that, that God is being tight-fisted towards us, being miserly towards us? It was no small thing for God to give up his only begotten son to take on human flesh, to suffer, to bleed, to die, to save sinners like us. That was no small thing. 
And so what Paul's doing is making an argument from the greater to the lesser. That He says we already have the greatest gift in Christ. And so why would we ever doubt that God would ever give us anything else that we need? You know, it's, it's analogous to, to the young woman whose who's now fiancé just uh, proposed to her. He, he just gave her the, the diamond ring of her dreams. Okay, it's so big, it's so beautiful, it's so brilliant, she can't hardly believe it, she's staring at it. She's so, she's so overjoyed with having it. And yet all she can think about and wonder about is, okay, but is he going to give me a box to put it in? See, if the father handed his son to the injustice and the brutality of the cross for our sake, he will not fail in the daily provision and the fatherly care that we need. As theologian John Stott put it, in giving his son, he gave everything. The cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. You see, dear Christian, remind yourself of this truth the next time if you want, when you're wondering, does God really love me? Is he really for me? Whenever you wonder whether or not God is too busy to, to care about your prayers and your concerns. So questions 1, 2, and 3 we see in verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Question four, we see in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? See, Paul now wants us to imagine we're in God's courtroom. And he speaks about God's elect. God's elect refers to those on whom God has chosen to set his saving love and his affection. His elect is a term describing those whom God loves and saves through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And the question here is, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Who will bring any charge against those whom God loves and saves in Christ? I mean, who could possibly bring any accusation against us that would separate us from God and his love for us? Now, we know that there certainly are many accusing voices, don't we? I mean, we felt the accusations and the, and the charges from our own consciences and our own hearts. We've, we've heard the accusations from other people. The Bible tells us the devil himself is the great accuser, that, that he trades in guilt and accusation. I mean, think about this, friends, that before you became a Christian, Satan tried as hard as he could to always downplay your sinfulness, you know, to whisper in your ear, listen, that wasn't that bad. You know, you're not that bad. You're really a good person. I mean, you're so much better than him. You're so much better than her. Your sin doesn't really matter. But then just as soon as you come to know Christ, his tactics change. He then wants to expose and highlight your sin as if that, that's all that's true about you. Is that you're not perfect. That you keep falling short of God's perfect standard. You see, our own conscience, other people, and Satan may tell us how bad we are and remind us of our sin over and over again, and they may whisper in our ears or even scream at us that we finally fully blown it this time, and there's no way that God can forgive us again for that. But, but look at Paul's answer to this question in verse 33. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. See, it's as if Paul is mocking all of the accusing voices in the life of a Christian because they simply don't matter. None of those charges, none of those accusations will ever stick. They all just fall harmlessly to the ground like arrows glancing off a shield. And why? Well, it's not because we really aren't that bad, because we are. It's not because our sin is not really that great, because it is. It's also not because of all the good things that we do. Because no matter how hard we try to be good, and I hope you will try to be good, but no matter how good you try to be, we'll never perfectly measure up to God's standard of righteousness. So why do none of the charges and none of the accusations stick for you, dear Christian? It's because God is the judge of the only court that matters. And as Paul gives us the answer in verse 33, it is God who justifies us. There's no higher court for our great enemies and our accusers to appeal. It is God who justifies us. And being justified is so much more than merely being forgiven. It's so much more than merely being acquitted or accepted or even having our record expunged, as wonderful as all of that is. You see, being declared justified is a declaration that we who are sinners are now made righteous in God's sight because Jesus both paid, for our, paid our sin debt for us and credited us with his perfect sinless life. In fact, the imagery the Bible gives us is that on the one hand, we are washed clean in Jesus' shed blood, but also we are clothed in his robes of righteousness. You see, one of the great images of this in the Bible is found in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet has a vision. We read, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. So we see here in this scene in Zechariah 3 that Satan, the great accuser, is doing what he does. He's bringing accusations against Joshua the high priest. Let me read in verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. See, the high priest's filthy garments represent his sin. And Satan is accusing him of being unfit for service because of his sin. And here's the truth. Joshua was a sinner, just like all of us are. But then we read in verses 4 and 5, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. See, why can no one, not even Satan, bring any charges that will stick against you, dear Christian? It's because of Christ. It's because in Christ, your filthy garments have been removed. That your sin has been washed away and you are now clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. As you read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, it's God the Father, made him, that's God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who shall bring any charge against us who are in Christ? The answer is no one. That no one can get around the finished work of Christ. 
No one can appeal to a higher court because there's not one. That God considers our case closed forever in our favor because of Christ, because of his life, his death, his resurrection. As the hymn puts it, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul was counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Question number five in verse 34. Who is to condemn? The simple answer is no one. Not for followers of Jesus. Not now, not ever. But how do we know for sure that our justification in Christ is certain? How do we know it's finished? How do we know all of our accusers looking to condemn us will all fail? Well, look again at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. See, Christ died for the very sins that could condemn us. That if you're trusting and resting in Christ as your Lord and Savior, all of the condemnation you deserve has fallen upon Christ. This means your sins can only condemn you because Jesus took them upon himself on the cross and he was condemned in your place. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As Paul asks in verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but there's more. He says, more than that, who was raised? See, who was raised? The resurrection. See, this is an Easter passage. It's not just that Jesus rose, but that he was raised, passive tense, by God the Father. That Jesus' resurrection is God's way of showing that Jesus' atoning sacrificial death was accepted by God the Father. You see, on Easter morning, we remember the tomb was empty. And Jesus is risen. And his resurrection demonstrates that his righteous life and his death on the cross was enough. It was sufficient to pay for our sin, to atone for our sin. And it's assurance that all who trust in Christ really, truly, fully, utterly, completely are justified from all their sin. The atoning sacrifice has been made. It's been accepted on your behalf. It is finished. But there's more. Look again at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So think about that. What is Jesus doing at the right hand of God, and why does it matter? Think about that. What's he doing? He's resting from his finished work of redemption. He's occupying his well-deserved place of supreme honor, and he is still our faithful high priest who continues to intercede for us as our advocate. And I think it's worth pointing out that there were no chairs in the Old Testament temple where the sacrifices were continually offered by the priests. There were no chairs. You know why they weren't? Because the work of the priests was never done. It was never finished. There was always more sacrifices to make. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So where where is Jesus right now? He's seated at God's right hand, and he's there because his work of redemption is completed. 
You see, friends, don't believe the lie that you have to or that you can atone for your own sin by trying harder to be better or nicer and sweeter and kinder and more generous. Don't believe the lie that as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and you, and you finish life in the black, that God's going to grade on a curve and you get to go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches anywhere. The Bible says that God's standard to have a relationship with him is righteousness. And none of us measure up. We all fall short. None of us have this righteousness in and of ourselves. That's why we need Christ. Trust in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. You see, nothing can add to or take away from Christ's single, once-for-all-time, atoning, sufficient sacrifice for sins. Therefore, if you are in Christ by faith, you are completely utterly secure in him that your salvation is completely secure in the one who lived and died and rose again to save you how do you know how can you be certain listen to how one commentator put it i look at the cross of christ and i know that atonement has been made for my sins i look at the open empty tomb in the risen and ascended lord and i know that the atonement has been accepted there no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins may have been. My sins may have been as high as the mountains, but in the light of the resurrection, the atonement that covers them is as high as heaven. My sins may have been as deep as the ocean, but in the light of the resurrection, the atonement that swallows them up is as deep as eternity. Or as the hymn puts it, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Now we make it to questions six and seven. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's a, it's a list that certainly is representative of the hardships that Paul faced personally in his life. I think it's representative of what of hardships that his audience 2,000 years ago could have or would have faced. And I think it's also you know, relevant to us because if or when we experience suffering like this, and Christians do suffer, we very well could wonder if this means that Christ no longer loves us. So you know why Paul gives us this list, don't you? See, for many of us, as soon as anything in our lives goes wrong, anything hard comes our way, we assume that means God no longer loves us. Or we go through life and good things are happening, smooth sailing, we think, well, God loves us, obviously. And then as soon as something hard comes, just as Peter warns us not to do, we think as soon as something hard comes, that something strange is happening to us, therefore God must no longer love me. Something good happens, he loves me. Something bad happens, he loves me not. But Paul's saying, not even the combination of all these bad things can ever separate you from the love of Christ. I mean, consider this list in verse 35. He mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, hostility that the faithful Christians can and will face in this life. He mentions famine and nakedness. 
to refer to suffering material loss for faithfulness to Christ. He mentions danger or sword, that the possibility of suffering martyrdom or even death for the sake of Christ. Now, this is a pretty serious list, but I think it's helpful for us to consider how little it takes sometimes for us to doubt and question Christ's love for us. Now, I don't don't have a, a camera, a hidden camera in your homes, but I'm guessing that sometimes all it takes is I can't find my car keys. I haven't been watching you, but I'm telling you, but I know my own heart. Sometimes all it takes is the traffic is so bad, I'm going to miss my flight. Sometimes all it takes is a flat tire. And then our minds and our hearts begin to race with the lie that Christ must no longer love me because these hard things are happening. But look what Paul says next. Next, in verse 36, he quotes from Psalm 44. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, he quotes Psalm 44 because Psalm 44 is a time, it's about a time when God's people were actually faithful. They were faithful to God and his word, and yet they felt like God was either asleep or even worse, he had abandoned them. And they, they began to question whether or not they were separated from his love, but they weren't because that can't happen. You see, dear Christian, no matter how much you feel like an abandoned sheep waiting to be slaughtered, know that nothing, no nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus because Jesus is the true and better Lamb of God. Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who was slaughtered in your place on the cross. He was abandoned on the cross so that you never ever have to fear being abandoned by God. See, Paul could go on and on forever naming things that might seem to threaten separating a follower of Jesus from the love of Christ. But no matter how long the list becomes, Paul's answer and therefore your answer if you're in Christ stays the same. So let me ask you again, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's the answer? The answer this Easter, the answer tomorrow morning, the answer forevermore, dear Christian, we read in verse 37 to 39, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, when he says, I am sure, that really means I'm convinced, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul says nothing in space, nothing high or low, nothing above, nothing below, nothing in heaven, nothing in hell can separate you, dear Christian, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That we cannot even separate ourselves from the love of God in Christ. I mean, do you know that? Do you believe that? You should because it's true. You know, most of us eventually we face wounds and blows and betrayals and illnesses that we can never have imagined. But even the worst of those things can never separate us from the love of God in Christ. See, as Paul says, not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ. But of course not, right? For the Christian, death is not passing from the land of the living to the land of the dead. That for the Christian, death is passing from the land of the dying 
to the land of the living, where we will spend all eternity with our triune God and his people. One last quote, R.C. Sproul says this, We may feel at times that God has departed from us, but that is when we have to believe his word rather than our feelings. The word of God promises and guarantees that death cannot separate us from Christ's love, nor can whatever comes our way in this life. So are you certain that God loves you? How do you know? How can you know? You look to the cross. You look to the empty tomb. You look to the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ who's sitting at God the Father's right hand and whoever lives to intercede for you. Not just for us, but for you. See, our confidence this Easter and our confidence tomorrow morning and the next day, our confidence is not in our love for God because our love is often too frail, too fickle, too faltering, but our sure and certain confidence and assurance and hope, our Easter assurance, our Monday morning assurance, our Wednesday afternoon assurance is in God's love for us, which is always steadfast, always faithful, always persevering, always preserving. It is a love that will never let us go. and It is a love that will bring each and every one of God's people all of the way home. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for promises and words of assurance like we read here in Romans 8. We thank you, Father, for this reminder that if you were for us, nothing, no, no one could ever truly be against us. We thank you, Father, for this, this argument from the greater to the lesser that if you have given up your son to save us, we have no reason whatsoever to ever doubt your fatherly care and provision and love for us. Thank you, Father, for reason upon reason that assures us that nothing, no nothing in all creation, in heaven above and hell below, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please write these truths upon our hearts this Easter, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.